Hello, and welcome back to EBRC in Translation. We're a group of graduate students and postdocs working to bring you conversations with members of the engineering biology community. I'm Kevin Reed, a graduate student in the Alper Lab at UT Austin. And I'm Andrew Hunt, a graduate student in the Jewett Lab at Northwestern University. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Baker, who is the director of the Institute for Protein Design, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, and a professor in biochemistry with adjunct appointments in many other departments at the University of Washington. David, we're really excited to have you today. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. Looking forward to it. To get us started off, uh, can you tell us a bit about your journey to becoming a professor and protein designer? It was very circuitous. <laughs> I had no intention of becoming a scientist when I was an undergraduate in college. Actually, my initial major was social studies, then uh, philosophy, and I kind of got into science in my last year. And then when I wrote my graduate school applications, I said I was interested in neurobiology and developmental biology. And my graduate work was on yeast cell biology. I never touch a, touched a computer. In fact, I ridiculed anybody in the lab who touched a computer as a total waste of time. And then I decided to make a big switch for my postdoc. And actually, this is, I think, relevant to post to graduate students out there. There were a number of people who knew me as a graduate student who I remember running into people and say, oh, yeah, dinner last night, we talked about your insane postdoc choice because it was in a completely different area. But then the first day of my postdoc, there was this computer terminal on my desk and I asked what it was for. And the PI said it was for computing. So I had to learn what that was. <laughs> and so I guess the, the moral of the story is you can do lots of different things and tra career trajectories don't necessarily go in a straight line. And then towards the end of my postdoc, we got really excited about sort of the fundamental principles of protein folding. And that's what I applied for faculty jobs saying I would study the simplest possible cases of protein folding and and figure out how they worked. Very cool. So sort of building from that, you spent a lot of your early career focused on the structure prediction, but really have transitioned your lab largely to de novo protein design or protein design from scratch. Can you talk about what drew you to de novo protein design initially and, and why you're still passionate about it now, maybe 20 years later? Yeah. Well, let's see. Like I said, when I, when I first started in Seattle a long time ago now, we were really focused on experiments, trying to figure out how proteins folded. And then sort of as an adjunct to that, we developed computational models for protein folding and found that they worked pretty well for protein structure prediction. And after we had gotten pretty good at protein structure prediction, we realized that we could invert the problem. Since so we could map from sequence to structure, we realized we could go backwards from structure to sequence. And Brian Coleman came to my lab and really sort of pioneered that. And once we started being able to design new proteins, then this huge brand new world opened up of being able to make all you know brand new proteins from scratch just to, you know, just for fun or to solve real world problems. And it was much more expansive, I would say, than protein structure prediction, where it was really protein structure predictions just sort of taking naturally occurring sequences and predicting their structures. Whereas with protein design, like like said, you could create this whole new world. So it was, uh, I think that was what drew me in. Yeah. Uh, it's neat as you think it's a little bit related to your initial interest in, in philosophy as an undergrad. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you know, you look back at, at things you've done and, and I, I would say that all these things that I did early on, like what was, what was the use of being a social studies or philosophy major? It didn't have, but, but now I, and why, and being a yeast cell biologist as a graduate student, but, but actually, I think all those experiences do sort of add up. To, I mean, I, what we do now is really, really broad. And so I think 
knowing a little bit about a lot of things and, and being able to think critically in a lot of different ways. It's important. Like one of the reasons actually I got out of the, I sort of got into design away from protein folding because at that time there was just a lot of talk about how proteins folded and it was kind of like, kind of almost sort of, it wasn't very rooted in reality. And that's a lot of what, you know, you, you sort of think about as, you know, as a philosophy student, you know, do arguments have content or not? Or is it just sort of language games? And with protein design, it was very, very concrete. You know, you make your design and either it works or it doesn't, right? So, And then having a background in experimental biology was really good when we started to actually test designs because, you know, whenever you make design, say a new enzyme, you, you really want it to work. So if you make a bunch of designs, it's easy to have kind of rosy colored glasses, you know, that make you think it's working when it's not. And so I think having some familiarity with how to do rigorous experimentation was really important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, your uh, your comments on rooted in reality feeds well into the next question. So your lab has uh, traditionally developed tools for protein structure prediction and design based on first principles uh, like Rosetta. However, new approaches leveraging machine learning like AlphaFold and RosettaFold uh, have received a lot of attention. Can you talk about what you see as maybe the utilities and limitations of each approach? Yes. Yeah, so the, um, the deep learning approaches are extremely powerful when there are high quality and large data sets to train models on. And I think one of the most important conclusions that can be drawn from the success of AlphaFold and RosettaFold is that the protein structure database is now rich enough to, uh, to contain really detailed information on, on sequence structure relationships down to, you know, the positions of individual atoms in a sequence of a previously unknown structure. Where physical models are important is when you want to compute things where there isn't a lot of data to go on. For example, if you want to uh, model unnatural amino acids or non-protein-like entities, if you want to compute quantities like binding energies where there aren't large data sets. Now, I have a little story here. I have a student who is constantly bemoaning the loss of, you know, the truth and beauty and the physical models for this kind of, you know, obscurism of the deep learning model. So what I say is, you know, that there may be a historical analogy, you know, in ancient Greece, you know, 500 BC, it was truth and beauty. Everything was principles and transparent and full of light. And in some ways, you know, a high point of, of human civilization. And then, then we kind of went into, later on, we went into the dark ages and it was just magic and mysticism. And, but then at the end, uh, then after that, the Renaissance came and it was like everything came together and the truth and beauty were even better than before. So we may just be in the dark ages now with uh, the mysticism and magic of models <laughs> with hundreds of millions of free parameters. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Do you, do you think that we will get to a spot like that where we'll be able to pull out physical insight to build better physical models? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really exciting time. Everything is moving. Things are moving incredibly fast. And undoubtedly, there will be going back and forth between the physical models and the deep learning. So there are a couple examples. For example, right now, sort of quantum chemistry methods have really embraced deep learning. And so they, those methods do very, very well. We're starting to, going the other way, we're starting to incorporate more physical modeling into Rosetta Fold, and it's clearly making a difference. So I think it's a little bit, uh, I wouldn't want to predict the future, but all I can say is it's going to be very exciting. Well, uh, <laughs> in the interest of predicting the future, our next question is about that. What do you think are some of the next major challenges in protein design and in structure prediction? Well, in protein design, 
there are some of the things I'm really excited about, you know, as you know, developing, you know, really improved therapeutics that, you know, currently protein therapeutics, it's largely antibodies, which are kind of blunt instruments. You know, they have a single combining site or bivalent that, you know, goes and knocks out a target. But for a lot of issues in medicine, would one want some more sophisticated medicine that could do, you know, logic calculations in the body, make decisions and so forth. And then there's, there's issues like, could we design proteins that cause cell fate transformation? So for example, turning uh, cancer cells into differentiated tissue or for recovery from injury, promote regeneration. Outside of the biological realm, nature gives us many, many exciting examples. You know, tooth and bone and seashells, they're basically proteins mediating the deposition of inorganic compounds by mineralization. And I think there's just huge potential there because imagine all the things you could make if you could get, you know, say semiconductor materials to form on a protein array or even calcium carbonate, new types that you could, if you could make designer things like bone or tooth or shells, it'd be incredible. Light harvesting, you know, nature is really, really good at it. Catalysis, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of bad things we've put on the planet. So if we could make enzymes to break them down, that'd be fantastic. So there's really just a huge, I could go on and on. There's lots and lots of exciting applications. And what's really fun for me now is I get really brilliant people coming here, as you know, who uh, are eager to make the world a better place by designing proteins to solve one of these problems. Yeah, totally. And all, and all of those applications require, you know, expertise from many different areas, right? So one right. of the other things that we notice and that I notice, especially when I'm reading your work, is that all of your publications have contributions from multiple labs and across different disciplines. How do you manage that collaborative process? And what have you learned through collaborating with so many different people? Yeah, well, um, it, I, that's the, I think the key thing to solving hard problems is, is getting smart people together who are really excited about the problem, who have really a range of expertise that covers all sides of it. So for my graduate students and postdocs, if they're, when they're working on a problem, so, and I always say, well, find the best person in the world or the person you think would be most exciting to work with and let's contact them. And I think that's so important. My model for my group is that sort of a communal brain where all these, you know, sort of like you can have individual researchers kind of work on their own. And that's like, you know, many, many small sets of, you know, individual neurons. Whereas if you get everyone together and everyone's kind of talking and brainstorming together, you get this, I think, really emergent properties happen. You can get really high order accomplishments. And I think Basically, collaborations are a great way to extend that to brilliant people who are experts in all these areas all over the world. So as far as managing it goes, you know, I, I think uh, I, I send a lot of emails to people asking if they mentioned collaborating. And I actually get a lot also. So a, a good example of how important that can be is we were interested in using, well, we, we used Rosetta Fold to predict the structures of all the core complexes in eukaryotes by sort of pairing all pairs of proteins and then predicting how they interacted. And we were left with this huge amount of data, but it was very, very hard to get biological insight from them. So I spent three or four weeks just contacting people, and my students did as well, who had worked on these complexes. And it became a whole village trying to interpret these different things. And it was super fun. And we, we learned just so much. So yeah, I think collaboration is absolutely critical. And I think you just have to, you know, you just have to, to contact people. And usually most scientists are excited about collaborating. As far as managing them, my students and postdocs generally, you know, have direct interactions with the collaborators and 
which I think is really the best way. So I'm not a, a limitation. It's interesting to me because you, you really get a lot of information about a lot of different disciplines, right? You're crossing traditional protein biochemistry with now lots of engineering biology stuff, but also, as I mean, as you mentioned, there's enzymology and biomaterials and all of this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about how you, I don't know, synthesize all that information? One thing is I just, you know, I always like new things. I get kind of bored easily. So just having some new area to go into is just super exciting. That's one of the really fun things. And, you know, I'm really fortunate that, like I said, these brilliant people come in who have the domain expertise I don't have. And so I can often learn from them or else we'll have a really close collaborator who we work with very closely who provides that. So I I don't uh, ever pretend to become an expert on, on, on anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fair. So I think sort of along these lines, you you also manage a really big lab. You have like almost 100 or maybe even more than 100 active members at really varying different points in their careers and from diverse backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit how you lead such a large team and, and mentor a really diverse group of people? Yeah. So like I said, the first is the communal brain principle. So one of the big things is creating an environment where everyone's interacting with everybody and brainstorming. So it's, there's no hierarchy, so it's totally flat. So everyone's kind of equal. Everyone's a creative and contributing ideas uh, to the group. So we have two group meetings a week where um, three people each present. We have happy hours after each of them. So it's a lot of social engineering just to get people talking all the time. And I don't travel and I don't do very much teaching and I'm on no committees. So I basically spend 100% of my time when I'm not doing things like this, just talking to the people in the lab about the research. You know, I've meet with every student or postdoc every three weeks. And most of what I'm trying to do is connect people. And then I guess the thing, most important thing is that people come here are really brilliant and excited and enthusiastic. So there are all these spontaneous collaborations bubble up, which are usually the most exciting ones. So we've also heard rumors that you actually do have projects that you work on yourself. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, you know, that's been a casualty of, um, well, it's it's indirect casualty of the pandemic. So up until the start of, you know, the, the lockdown, I always had my own project and I never really had a schedule. I just sort of wandered around the lab every day trying to find someone who wanted to talk to me. And if no one did, I worked on my own project. But with the pandemic, since we were doing everything over Zoom, I had to have a schedule. So, you know, I had half an hour blocks all day um, talking to students on Zoom. And then once the pandemic ended, that has stayed. So I am right now, I'm a little embarrassed to say I have not made much progress on anything on my own right now. So so what type of project would you work on? Well, I think my most recent projects were deep learning projects because it was a couple of years ago, we were trying to do deep learning and I wanted to, to learn some. So one of my pro- most recent projects was to see whether you could compute the energy of a protein structure from just the backbone coordinates. And that is useful because in Rosetta, when you do that, it, it's very time consuming because you have to do this search over all the side chain confirmations. So it didn't work very well, <laughs> but I learned a lot. I'm, I'm curious, are you, are, you, are, you, are you planning to pick any of those back up once things, you know, maybe go back to normal? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. Right now, I think I, think I would have to go back to my less scheduled life to do that. And yeah, I think, you know, everything's, I think we're all still in flux on, on how our lives are going to be once things get totally back to normal. So I think I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Well, that's great. 
I'm switching gears to something else, something really neat that has come out of your lab is the citizen science-focused project Foldit, where your lab created a video game for players to predict protein structures and design new proteins. Can you talk a little bit about how that originated and how it's grown since its inception? Yeah, well, part of it is, as I described, you know, I've, I've always been interested in sort of recruiting excited, smart people to help solve hard problems. And uh, so this is kind of Foldit is the is an effort to really go wide on that. The way it started is before Foldit, we had started a project called Rosetta at Home, which is still ongoing project. And that provides a lot of the compute power for the research here. And so Rosetta at Home contributors, they contribute spare cycles on their computers when they're not otherwise using them. And that's really what's powered a lot of the advances in de novo design over the years. So we had people, uh, when you run Rosetta at Home, you see a screen uh, a screensaver appears that shows the course of your protein folding up or being designed. And people started writing in saying, well, I'm watching the computer do this and I, I think I could do a better job because the computer just kind of <laughs> randomly searching. And then I, I, I like going to the mountains. I decided to go up for a day with, or went for a day with uh, the father of a friend of my daughter's who was a computer scientist. And I was describing this. And then we st- sort of started talking about, well, maybe you could have an online video game, which was like Rosetta at home with Rosetta underneath where people could go in and start modifying things. And then he introduced me to a couple really talented uh, graduate students and a CS professor interested in games. And we were kind of off and running. Really cool. Can you talk a little bit about what it's used for today? Because you all still run Foldit, right? Um, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like, if I were to log on to Foldit right now, what sort of stuff would I get to be involved in? Well, let's see. There are different types of challenges. One is designing protein assemblies. It's, It's kind of fun in Foldit. So it's now set up so that you can choose a symmetry, like say cyclic symmetry, something with five copies. And as you change one copy, all the other copies change in synchrony. So it's kind of like looking through a kaleidoscope or something. Uh, so that's fun. Actually, uh, Folded players were had puzzles trying to link the different coronavirus binding domains. And we're still working on you know their problems in protein small molecule recognition, protein DNA design. So the problems, the puzzles change every week or two, and they usually reflect some of the, what the main challenges that people are interested in here. And we put those puzzles on Folded to see what people come up with. Oh, very cool. In addition to all of your academic work, you all have spun out a really large number of companies over the years. Could you talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial process from the academic point of view and, and maybe about when you think a technology or a discovery is, is ready to go build a company around? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because the last thing I ever thought I would be doing would be spinning out companies. Um yeah, that just shows that's another example of don't plan too far ahead. Yeah, so the origin of that is after we started doing protein design and started making proteins that, that could be useful, the students and postdocs working on those projects got interested in sort of continuing them, but we didn't really have funds for that. So we were able to raise some funding for uh, what we call uh, translational investigators. So if you come to the IPD as a graduate student or postdoc, then, and then if you create something that looks like it could be useful, that the program can support you for another year or two of getting whatever it is you've designed to the point where you can launch a successful company. So that relates to the question, you know, when is the right time? I think that the, the, the most successful companies I've been a part of are ones where you really have something that already has value and it just, you know, say in the case of a, of a vaccine or a drug, there's already some demonstrated efficacy and it's really a matter of planning how to get it out in the real world. And I think the the nice thing about our translational program is you have the time and the resources to actually develop things to that point. 
But now it's kind of cascading or, or accelerating because now many people are coming to the IPD with the hope of then starting their own company when they move on. And so I think we're in the process of starting three companies right now. And, you know, they're in all this, they're covered this really wide range of areas that that we work in. So yeah, it's a really exciting time. It's fun for me because well, it's, it's great. So so then, um, you know, I, normally when a graduate or postdoc leaves, then they go on and they, they do something completely different. But now people are really pursuing their vision. And, you know, I get to, it, it's just really cool to see all these different efforts going forward and not just ending. I mean, that's the, the, the traditional criticism of academic research is it doesn't really impact the world. But now having sort of this route for people to go out and further develop what they've done as, as graduate students or postdocs is great. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I'm curious, could you talk a little bit more about what your what your role is in these companies? Is it mostly just purely advisory or do you do any, like, do you have any additional responsibilities? Yeah, well, let's see. My role is just advisory, but when people leave my lab, it's a little bit like kids leaving home. When they ask me for advice, they kind of know what I'm going to say and they're probably tired of listening to me anyway. So, <laughs> so I would say that I... I'm not asked for advice all that much, which is fine. You know, I think I, I provide whatever, you know, I, I'm very supportive, but, um, and I try and do anything that is, would be useful so I can help make connections and stuff. And yeah, but I, I, you know, my, my focus is really on stuff going on at the IPD. Yeah, that's great. What, did, what advice would you give to someone who's really interested in the field of protein design and maybe interested in becoming a professor? Well, I think if you want to become a professor, I think one of the things is just to remember that's your vision and don't lose sight of it. And I think determination and motivation is really important for that. Obviously, you know, doing really exciting, great science is is the best recipe for success. I would say be in an environment where you're kind of set up to succeed. And so that's kind of like with my group, I sort of see that as my role is like creating an environment with, you know, the people, the, the brain power and all the other resources that, that anyone would need if they really wanted to do exceptional science. It's, you know, it's hard to do that in isolation. So you want to be in a place where, where everything's sort of set up for you to succeed. That's great. And it sounds like you, I think you had mentioned previously that you, you don't do any teaching and you're not on committees. So you sort of carved your own path as being a very specific research type professor. How did you negotiate that? Or was it just over time you sort of evolved into that? Yeah, well, let's see. I told you I didn't really have a calendar up until recently. Well, early on in the department, I think it was realized I didn't have a calendar. And so I was I had this bad habit of missing meetings and stuff. And I was always very nice about it and very apologetic. But I think I just wasn't very good on committees and stuff. So and then I, I have I do teach a, a graduate biophysics course every fall. So that that was just sort of what the job came with. And I think now at this point, I think I can I can just be very direct. I can be very open to someone. If, if I get an email asking me to give a talk somewhere, I said, well, I'm you know, I'm really focused on research here. So and talking to students and postdocs in my lab, so I can't travel, but I can do it by Zoom. And so I can just say that. And then I think, you know, people here know that I'm busy and that I'm really focused entirely on research. So, you know, you kind of develop your style and then people get to know you and and then it kind of all all works. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, another quick follow-up question. So I really like that there's this article by Paul Graham that has like the the maker versus manager schedule. And so I'm curious how, how you balance like you thinking about ideas versus you like 
talking to students and like, you know, in postdocs and guiding them on their own projects? I kind of think, you know, I, I think they're sort of the same thing because a lot of the ideas I get, and I think a lot of the ideas anyone gets, and certainly people here come up from just conversation. So I think it stimulates thinking. So I, I sort of look at, so when I'm, I'm meeting with students, it's, there, it's usually sort of each, there's usually a, a brainstorming, you know? So, I mean, I do have ideas when I'm walking to work or, you know, we're skiing on the weekends. So, but I, I think that that, that constant interaction is sort of an idea generator. And that's why I, when one of the, the one thing I do, if I, if I, if a new student comes into the group and I don't see them talking to a lot of people, I, you know, I really encourage them to just, just go and talk to as many people as they can about what, what they're doing. And yeah, we had a group meeting last week where two groups of three people presented on projects, super cool new projects they had done. None of the three people had any, their research had anything in common before. They were just sort of ideas that kind of bubbled up and yeah, it was really beautiful. So I kind of think that talking about the manager, I wouldn't say, I don't really feel like a manager. I, I feel like, you know, these conversations are about science and we're kind of thinking about ideas. And I think that's, that is partially where good ideas come from. So as a last question, we were wondering uh, in an alternate reality where you didn't end up going into science and didn't end up becoming a professor, uh, what do you think you would have done instead? Gosh, I, I always like new things and, and I get kind of, yeah, I don't know, something where I could, where things were moving quickly forward. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's what really got me from philosophy into sciences that, that, you know, philosophy and social studies were just, they were static, they weren't moving. And then science was moving forward. So there's a sense of progress. I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I'm not really sure it's, it's, I mean, I guess I probably would have been happy doing a lot of different things, but as far, I mean, I can think of a lot of fun things. I mean, I love climbing mountains and, you know, exploring <laughs> the world, but I don't know. I would have, I'm sure I would have enjoyed being a 15th or 16th century explorer, explorer, you know, trying to map out continents and things, but Today's world, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I. <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious a little bit about the the mountain climbing real quick because I'm like my family's from Colorado, so I do a lot of like the 14ers and do a lot of mountain climbing like that. What what are your what are your mountains of choice? Well, I, actually, it was funny. I I like I said, I don't travel very much, but I got invited some some years ago by the University of Colorado Boulder graduate students to give a seminar. I said I would do it if they if we could ski down a 14er. I don't remember which one it was, but that was really fun. I like, you know, this time of year, I like doing a lot of ski mountaineering in the spring. And yeah, the Cascades, of course, and Northwest is great for that. So awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. Well, David, is there anything you'd like to promote for being on the podcast? Things like uh, DEI efforts or research openings or papers or anything like that? Let's see. Well, there's a lot of things, but I don't want to go on and on. And I'm worried if I give you a list of a couple of them, then the ones I leave out will be. <laughs> I think I'll just maybe leave it there. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, David. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, yeah. great. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you. So uh, this has been another episode of EBRC in Translation, a production of the Engineering Biology Research Consortium's Student and Postdoc Association. For more information about EBRC, visit our website at ebrc.org. If you are a student or a postdoc and are interested in getting involved with the EBRC Student and Postdoc Association, you can find our membership application linked in the episode description.
A big thank you to the entire EBRC SPA podcast team, Catherine Brink, Fatima Anam, Andrew Hunt, Kevin Reed, Ross Jones, Coxy Lee, and David Mai. Thanks also to EBRC for their support and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you soon.